0: This is life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse, learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Unexpected Agricultures with Michael Abelman. Greetings everyone, this is Alexa and welcome to the very first episode of the show, I couldn't be more delighted to have you here and for us to be exploring the many life worlds of our planet together. Over the next 10 episodes, we're going to be speaking with ecologists, lawyers, technologists, artists, and a whole host of practitioners who have learned to get really, really close with the non-human world around them. Through them, we're going to learn what nature needs from us to thrive and regenerate, and how we can begin to develop those skills ourselves. As you'll see, Each of our guests is going to reveal extraordinary lessons that we can learn from other species and how we're all the better off when we're able to experience the world as one that is shared with other life. We're going to kick off the show by getting our feet down in the soil to talk about farming and agriculture. This is because farmers and those who work the land are very often the people whose entire days are spent immersed in the life worlds of the land, in the delicate stalks of green, the humming of pollinators, the pungent smells of cardamom or vanilla or creole maize, the beating of bird feather, and the crunch of parched soil underfoot. Their very survival depends on them seeing and interpreting the world around them through all of these other eyes. I personally have immense respect for farmers. I grew up spending a lot of time on farms, and my relationship to food has been defined by traveling all around North and South America spending time in the fields, trying to understand just where our food comes from and the astounding care and energy it takes to grow even the humblest sprout. I don't have to tell you here how destructive many of our current agricultural practices are to both the planet and to human health. Today, we're going to look at approaches that can help steer our global food system in a different direction. Michael Abelman, has been an organic farmer for over 50 years and is considered one of the pioneers of the organic farming and urban agriculture movements. He was the founder of Soul Food Street Farms, North America's largest urban farm, employing people who have been impacted by long-term addiction and mental illness. This experience has proven to him how farming can help to heal human hearts and minds. And he's going to share with us his intimate approach of farming, bringing us on a walk around his farm on Salt Spring Island dropping clues and hints as to how you too can begin to listen to the land. Farming, agriculture and eating are some of the most direct acts that you can practice day to day in caring for the earth because nowhere else is our dependence on nature so embodied, so visceral and so raw. The Japanese farmer and philosopher Fukoka once said that the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. I would add to that, very much inspired by what our guests share today, that the goal of farming is also for humans to learn how to become a reciprocal species, one that supports and feeds countless non-human lives through our acts of farming and growing and feeding. As this is our first time together, I want to point you towards the Life Worlds website, where I will be compiling pages of resources and links on all of the subjects that we discuss here. For this episode, There will be pages on farming and food and agriculture. We now travel across the American continent to spend time with Michael Abelman. So to kick off, Michael, I wanted to um, chat about your relationship to agriculture and farming, because that will be the focus of this conversation and food systems more broadly You've been an activist, you've been an organic farmer since the 1970s, so like way ahead of the trendy curve, but just doing what was the right thing from the get-go. You've authored a bunch of books all about farming and urban agriculture, uh, founded North America's largest urban agriculture project in the east side of um, Vancouver in British Columbia. And you've been a photographer and a road tripper as well for some of the books you've been writing. I mention all that because I wanted to ask you, why have all of these different approaches been important for you in your relationship to agriculture? You didn't just choose farming or photography or writing or activism or project management. You're like, I'm going to do it all. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship to each of those things and how they have woven together in your life.
1: Mm, that's an awesome question. Um yeah, you know, I didn't really um begin this journey uh with um you know kind of any preconceived ideas as to where I was going or what I was doing. In fact, my life has been this um, amazing and great unfolding. Um uh, I do remember when I was quite young <clears throat> in my late teens looking around at the world uh and wondering what could I possibly do as a livelihood that did not require sucking the life out of the world uh, and uh, it sounds like a strange question but for me I saw um, so many endeavors that were contributing to you know kind of the great unraveling of, of ecosystems and social systems and cultural systems and political systems, <clears throat> all um, with a primary goal of, of, you know, making a living, or in some cases, for many people, uh, going well beyond that, you know, um, going well beyond their personal needs. And so I, um, I was really curious. I, I thought, well, you know, what can I do that I can actually support myself and my family, but at the same time uh, will have a positive effect? And um, that was a question that lingered and hung, and then by some amazing miracle of fate, I was um, uh, found myself in an agrarian commune at the age of 18 <laughs> uh, with uh, an amazing experience at 18 years old uh, uh, managing uh, a 100-acre organic pear and apple orchard. It was one of the first organic orchards in North America. I knew nothing about orcharding. I knew nothing about farming. Uh, I was managing a crew of 30 people, most of whom were older than I was. The orchard had been abandoned for 15 years, so you couldn't even see the alleys down the middles of the rows. The the branches had intertwined so much. I had a 1930s copy of a wonderful book called Modern Fruit Science. Uh, The journal from the guy who had last run the place and given up in frustration And a copy of Goethe's famous quote, which I still have on my walls, um, whatever you can do or believe you can begin it, boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And that quote was attached to the door of my 20-foot unheated trailer where I live. And it's still attached. It's it's on many walls in my house, you know. And so... um, It was incredible because I went to work each day with uh, 30 of my friends. And unlike so many experiences in agriculture at that time, I I went to work. It was like being in an all-day party. We joked and we we played and we um, speculated on the fate of the earth. We ate our lunch together under the shade of the trees. And at the end of the day, instead of feeling like I had been chained to some mind-numbing drudgery, I felt like I had attended this amazing all-day party. That orchard thrived, those apples and pears gained a reputation around the country. And while um, you know, I know that um, a certain element of the success of that fruit was the, the, the warm days and cold nights of that high desert valley, I'm pretty sure that the amazing flavor of that fruit and its success was more tied to the passion of that group of people. Uh, the, the energy they had working with each other and with that land. Uh, and that's what really infused that experience. And that infused my love of agriculture. That was the beginning. And so to answer your question, I continued from there. I had I had a fire about agriculture. But I also at a certain point realized that I wanted to communicate my
0: experience. And I'll, I'll stop there. With an old book, a journal, and a quote, you managed to assemble this ragtag team of 30 people to care and create some of the country's best tasting fruit. And that's a really important insight that we'll probably return to, which is this notion that the quality and taste of food is not just linked to its nutrient density or the soils out of which it was grown or even the climatic conditions, but something about the quality of the people that nurtured that plant. And that's probably very difficult to quantify and yet I think anyone who's also worked with chefs or in kitchens would say the same. There's something about the human relationship to what's being tended to and the reciprocity that makes for better food. Um, and, and I think we will touch on that in a little bit when we speak about your your current farm. But before we go there, if you can fill in in whatever creative way you'd like that gap between where you are today and that young uh, bootstrapping guy living out of his unheated <laughs> trailer.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, just to add to your comment, I mean, the the best fertilizer is the farmer's, you know, footsteps on the field, the, that that energy piece, you're right. It's, it's, it sounds very woo-woo and it sounds, uh, and it is pretty hard to quantify, but that's really a key element, you know? And so, you know, moving forward from there, I managed to uh, move from there to an incredible, um, project, uh, north of Santa Barbara, California, a 12 and a half acre farm that I developed uh, and became an island of um, agriculture floating in a sea of tract homes and shopping centers. Uh, It was a piece of land zoned for 52 condominiums. We produced a hundred different products, different fruits and vegetables. Um, uh, We fed somewhere around 500 families on that land. Uh, ran uh, extensive education programs. And in the end, we were faced with the uh, one year to uh, save that land from uh, imminent development. Uh, And we were successful. In eight months, we raised, uh, it was a million dollars at that time, uh, equivalent to about eight to 10 million in today's dollars. We formed a nonprofit called the Center for Urban Agriculture, which um, took ownership. We put that land on under one of the first active agricultural conservation easements um, in the u s which gave the land a voice it 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 was a legal document attached to the title that said this land must remain in agriculture and went even further to state what type of agriculture and that education had to be a component as well and that became kind of my um, the the grounds in which I was able to both develop myself as a farmer, uh, but also develop some of my ideas, um, some of the possibilities, uh, the place where agriculture could become a um, stepping off point for uh, inspiring and educating the community in so many other areas. You know, um, we experimented with all kinds of events, cultural events, music events. Uh, this is well before all this was happening. I mean, this is, these kinds of things sounds very um, typical to what we see today, but this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, actually. Um, And so um, uh, in the process during that time, the the nonprofit that we formed, I called the Center for Urban Agriculture because that farm had become, uh, as I said, surrounded by development. Uh, We were also at the time invited to develop a project in Watts in Los Angeles uh, on a three acre plot that um, was the former home of the Watts Health Clinic, uh, was burned down during the uprisings in the uh, 60s, and we developed a, a, a farming project there. And eventually I began to see that there was enormous potential to create both economic enterprises and food producing uh, um, plots in, on, on very small pieces of land within our cities. Uh, and this became kind of the template for uh, my interest in urban agriculture. Um, I saw that uh, uh, many, at that time, many urban areas um, had a plethora of abandoned lots Uh, many people without work, uh, no access to fresh food. And I thought, well, what if we could, uh, 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 to use Wendell Berry's quote, solve for pattern? What if we could create enterprises that addressed all three of those issues? Uh, And so we, as I said, we developed that project in Watts. It had uh, mixed success because if you haven't noticed, my skin is not black or brown. I'm not from that neighborhood. And while elements of that project continue to this day, um, in the end, we had to leave it for the people who lived there. But if you fast forward, um, I don't know how many years, <laughs> 30 years and 1,400 miles north, um, I was able to, in the city of Vancouver, establish um, something that has been quite successful and has um address some of my concerns about uh, uh, development uh, that I had way back when. We we have learned to do some things right. Uh, And we now run a project which you referred to. Um, Some people say it's the largest urban agriculture project in the world. I don't know if that's true. It is a social enterprise employing uh, people dealing with long-term addiction, mental illness, material poverty. Uh, And it has a very simple mission, which I can tell you about if you want me to continue. (laughs) I'm talking a lot. (laughs) Uh, You know, basically, uh, it's incredibly simple. Uh, Our intention for that project was merely to give people a reason to get out of bed each day, a sense of purpose and belonging, soil, fertile soil to put their hands in, a sense of producing for the local community, something real and tangible. Um, And we're working with people who have had a pretty tough go uh, and um, where success is a very difficult thing to, you know, to determine. (laughs) Uh, But I will say that we have people working with us to this day who've been with us for 13 years, who never previously held a job for you know, four or five months, who still are with us. Um, We have, um, uh, we were given six months to survive in this project. We're now, as I said, 13 years into it. Um, Hundreds of people have uh, had uh, uh, training and employment opportunities. Uh, And I think the project has inspired uh, similar endeavors in other parts of the country and the world, so. So that's pretty
0: exciting. I think it's such a inspiring example of what can be done in a massive city's unused parking lots, right? Like you basically went to this devoid, concrete emptiness. And if I remember correctly, when you first told me about this, you guys had to custom design these little, um, probably it's not the right word for it, these, these boxes, right? Like these movable trays that the farming could be done on so it could be, um, portable and, and shifted around. So you, you customize custom design, maybe that's even worth talking about, but you custom designed these farming plots. And then, as you said, people who are experiencing material poverty and previous forms of drug addiction, and for people who haven't been to downtown Vancouver, it's, uh, it's also been described as one of North America's largest slums. It's a pretty sad place. You know, a lot of people suffering there, um, and, and yet you've filled these empty, vacant plots with soil and plants and life. And in a way, the healing of the individuals who are farming there. And I think for, for people who haven't buried their hands in soil or, or tended to a garden, like why does this transform people? Why do you think it is that people who haven't held a job consistently their whole lives, turn up at an urban agriculture project and they're like growing some herbs or some you know fruits? And then that transforms them. Why is that?
1: Well, first of all, um, just to provide some context, we're producing 35 tons of food annually on large parking lots uh, on a, roughly about four acres um, using this innovative system that you described of um, boxes that both isolate the growing medium from either contaminated soil or pavement and allow us to move on short notice, which is an issue for every city. Uh, So these are production farms and these are real jobs. And in fact, interestingly enough, our staff who never had farming experience, bristle uh, if someone refers to the farms as gardens or or them as gardeners. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) I never thought I'd hear that instinct, but it's wonderful. And um, one of our staff who I was just with the other day, uh, Nova, who was a former meth addict street kid living on Granville Road, Gr- Granville Street, coined the term farmily, which I love, which is uh, uh, the, cha- I, I made it the chapter of, uh, one of the chapters in the book that I wrote about the project. And I love that because it, it really embodies the essence and the importance of what we've organized this sense that the farm is more than just a production unit or a factory for food or a place to go to work, it is a place to connect, okay? And it's a place where people come and they feel they belong and they feel a sense of purpose. And I have never attributed any, we're not social workers, we're not drug addiction experts, Um, we're merely farmers that realize that the simple act of growing food Of giving people uh, an opportunity to do something real in their lives and that sense of purpose and belonging could have a profound impact on their lives. And I'm not sure I understand entirely how that works. I do know that there are physiological implications to working with living soil. We know that's actually been studied and demonstrated that that working with soil affects people's serotonin levels. I I have seen remarkable things where, you know, one of our first neighborhood farmers, Kenny, uh, who said to me, you know, I come to work feeling miserable and I leave feeling renewed and happy. Now, what's going on with that? (laughs) It's nothing that we are doing. This is something they are doing for themselves. We have merely set the table, provided this incredible place for people to come to. It's a safe environment. We provide some training. Um, we provide, you know, the acres of of soil and boxes and and direction. But these folks are doing this for themselves, and and the results have been really amazing.
0: What you're describing it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, the book Once for Revolution" by Fukuoka? Um and he says the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops but the cultivation and perfection of the human uh, soul or human beings. Yes. I love that. Right. You give two thumbs up there. And um, and and it is fascinating how that act of farming can be so, how it's not about the farming or the agriculture. Of course it is, but there's this deeper process that's taking place inside of people. Um, do you think that a part of what, Uh, those folks at Soul Food Street Farms or other people who are working the land, do you think that it has something to do with participating with quote-unquote nature or other forms of life? Or perhaps in this example, it's um, it's the human fabric that's being woven.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I can only kind of look to myself and see and acknowledge the healing that I have experienced as a result of the work that I have ended up doing. And I know that there are many days where I just, I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, you know, and um, maybe the weather's cloudy or it's rainy, or um, especially on our shoulder seasons here, it's it can be tough to go out and want to work. There's something that happens once I get my feet on the ground and I actually get out the door and I'm out in that space, um, something shifts <laughs> uh, almost immediately. Um, and I just feel so lucky that, um, uh, that I personally have this opportunity to, uh, to do that work, because I think in many ways it's saved my own mental health, especially through these last three years. And so so, you know, I, I don't, I'm not in other people's heads. I have heard lots of stories. Our staff are very free and open with talking about their issues and with talking about their experience at Soul Food and um but um you know when i uh reflect on my own experience i i kind of get it i understand <laughs> um that something is happening uh when we reconnect with with uh natural systems um because we are essentially i mean we are part of those systems we have just forgotten that you know when we put ourselves back into the world where we truly belong, um, and uh, immerse ourselves in that world, um, whether it's through farming or taking a hike or walking through the woods or whatever, um, we begin to reclaim that which is truly who we are. And I think, um, and and it's it's hard for me to articulate some of this because, wow, I mean it's. Um, it, for me, it's, uh, total magic. You know, I literally, I can leave my house feeling, I don't want to go to work. I'm not feeling great today. I'm grumpy. And, you know, I'm out there and an hour later, I'm happy, you know, (laughs) and I see that with our staff and something's going on. Maybe you can articulate it. (laughs) I
0: actually want to comment on, I think there's something different to, uh, working the land through farming or other means and just taking a hike. And I don't mean to diminish taking a hike. I obviously am an avid hiker myself, but there is something about the even closer observation and sensitivities that you need to manage a farm versus prancing through the woods with delight and picking things up and just being, you know, a joyful child, Right. Uh, and they each have their place, but there, there's something about, as you said, observing and being inside of a natural system, being part of that system itself, but knowing that you have to listen really closely, otherwise the harvest might not turn out turn out quite right, or you plant too early, you plant too late, or you don't. So the the, the stakes are higher, yeah. right? And I think that when the stakes are higher, something interesting happens. And, and so what's your approach to, uh, right now you're in Foxglove Farm on, on BC, which is a farm that You've been running for quite some time, and what's your approach to farming there um and maybe for folk who are listening who have never farmed, what's it like to observe a season and and tend to the different crops that are there and if there's anything you can describe that can make it come alive, like what is it to farm with sensitivity? I mean,
1: there's no question i you know I don't have any formal training. In agriculture, uh, or just about anything else, except maybe the visual arts a little bit. But, um, but one thing that I did realize early on was the in, incredible importance of um, observation as being the the probably the most important agricultural skill. And I have developed that one skill quite uh, thoroughly. <laughs> Uh, to the degree that it's almost too much where I can be on a road trip and I'm looking out the window at, you know, flying down the highway at other people's fields, um, you know, making judgments you know, <laughs> or, or observations, you know. Uh, it's amazing what you, you learn to see. And so I, uh, on a two or three times a week, I walk through my fields with a notebook and while I don't hear voices, uh, the plants and the animals and the soil do, in fact, tell me what they need, and I, I, I mean that very directly. I, um, I can look at a situation. I look at a field, and I know almost immediately what's required. You know, what's the? How? You know, um, um, are the leaves turgid or are they drooping? Um, what are the subtle color differences? I mean, green is not just one color. There's a, there's a thousand different uh, gradations of green, you know, and what do they all mean? Um, how does the soil feel to me and, and smell and sometimes even taste? And what is that telling me, you know? Um, you know, what uh, various little critters have shown up from one day to the next and what are they able to communicate to me? Uh, and what are the plants communicating with them in order to have attracted them or, or having repelled them? You know, um, uh, So many uh, um, subtle and not-so-subtle cues uh, that come from those walks. And from those walks uh, uh, results a very clear list of what we need to do, um, uh, the projects and the jobs for the week and the day. Um, uh, understanding what you said, this is um, both a... Incredible incredibly spiritual practice, but it's an incredibly pragmatic and practical practice because <clears throat> I farm for a living. <laughs> we do this as an as an enterprise, just as we do at Soul Food. And um uh and um you know, while I love the the uh, uh spiritual and ecological and social aspects of it, we have to pay the bills. <laughs> and so <clears throat> So what's amazing to me is um, that um, we have somehow found a way to marry uh, natural systems agriculture to a market economy. <laughs> the instincts for both and the uh, are are often appear not to be on the same track, but somehow we make that work. Uh, it's really fascinating, and I think. I find that we make that work better when the relationships are uh, first and foremost. So direct marketing is, is what, what my preference is. So farmers markets and uh, box programs or community supported agriculture programs, um, marketing programs that actually build relationships versus the more anonymous ones of loading a truck for distant ports, you know. So for Foxglove Farm, I mean, this is a 120 acre farm. It's the remnants of an original homestead. Uh, And when we arrived, my first questions and first sense was, whose shoulders am I standing on here? I wanted to understand, for example, why the original homesteaders traveled up the mountain to this place and and, uh, what they were thinking. when they came here, it was entirely in forest and cleared <clears throat> trees that were 15 feet in diameter with little, uh, they didn't have the right saws to do it. And <clears throat> What was behind that? What was their instincts? <clears throat> um, what was going on here before that time, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> with the Coast Salish people who moved in and around the lake that we border? And and uh, what were they seeing? Um uh, what did this land look like at that time and and uh all the different generations that came before us, whose shoulders are we standing on and um and trying to understand first and foremost what are the expectations of the land that i 'm on you know not just what are my expectations from it, <laughs> what does it want for me you know uh, and from that we built uh we spent probably a year or two just Making drawings and, and planting the farm on paper and, and understanding how the air moved and the light moved and um, and what the possibilities were. And we built a farm that both has an incredible aesthetic. We actually we have discovered that there is an alignment between the the uh, one's visual instincts as a visual artist, which I know you are and, and I am. Uh, and good agriculture—it's fascinating. There are a lot of, of really successful farmers that I know, who are remarkable artists. You know? <laughs> and there's a there's a relationship there, the observation piece, right? Um, and so we design the farm on paper. We build it with a, a, a core base of perennials as the kind of the the rooted element of the whole system with the annuals kind of moving in and around those perennial systems, you know, uh, the truth is the annuals pay the bills, (laughs) the perennials provide the, the heart and the soul and the anchor for the system. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, we have this incredible, um, seasonal progression of Mediterranean, primarily Mediterranean fruits and vegetables. Um, You know, heirloom tomatoes and peppers, French melons, uh, white asparagus and green asparagus, um, fresh baby ginger, which you experienced some of. How was that, by the way?
0: (laughs) It was so tangy. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: This amazing array of things and many uh, uh, products that uh, no one believed could certainly grow in this climate at 1,200 feet on the side of a mountain. and that's part of my rebellious and honry and um <clears throat> nature <laughs> to <clears throat> try those things that everybody says cannot be done you know? <laughs> uh and uh um and so you know our primary uh way of working here is direct and clear observation uh respect of the uh, natural systems that intersect and surround our fields because every field is intersected and surrounded by uh, by native forest. And there is an incredible, there's something going on there that's, I don't entirely understand, but there's no question that there's a connection between the dynamic fertility of our farmed fields and the forests that surround them. Uh, don't ask me to explain it scientifically. I cannot. I just see it. <laughs> Um, and, uh, to respect that we are in the heart of the island's prominent and dominant watershed, and that we need to know that everything that moves through this land leaves cleaner, pure, and as good as when it enters. Um, so that the downstream impact of our work is, is very important, uh, because we, this farm sits in, in a very, um, critical sensitive ecosystem. Um, and to also respect and honor and acknowledge um, all those who came before us. Um, because, and that's um, kind of been the subject of a book I've been working on for eight years, which could take me another eight years, I don't know, but, uh, called Passing Through. You know.
0: I'm struck by what you shared in the beginning of the call, which was you know when you were a young kid, you had this feeling of not wanting to suck life out of the world. And here you are sharing that, at least the the part that you can play is that the water that flows through your land is cleaner and fresher, and that you're you're caretaking what the land wants from you, not what we want from the land. And so, you know, I think just it's it's worth honoring that and pausing. It seems like you're you're kind of living up a little bit to what you intended to do when you were when you were younger. Um, that switch from not from, okay, what can we get from this ecosystem? How can we harvest this? Even like, how can we harvest this Harvest this well is a very, very different question. And the difference might be subtle, but I think the difference is critical. It's a very different question to, how can I serve this ecosystem or this place by my harvesting, by my cutting, right? In the first example, you're serving a human endeavor or even you're you're doing your very best to be sincere, but there's still a, the goal is oriented towards the betterment of your your system, whatever it may be your human system in the second example, your harvest a process of harvesting is serving that land first and foremost, and if that land is served, then your farm will do well um and so I'm curious, do you ever get the feeling without wanting to anthropomorphize too much but you know when you said this part of communication, that, that the plants tell you what they need. Do you ever feel like you're serving someone else beyond your your clients at the farm and your own livelihoods with your family? Like do you have a sense that there's a an otherworldly community that you're also serving?
1: Mm. <clears throat> awesome question. I love it. Absolutely. I mean, I <laughs> I will reveal that um uh early this winter I spent <clears throat> quite a bit of time doing some um journeying uh to other realms <laughs> with some help from from plant medicine which i'm i i must say i'm i'm really uh very happy that that there's an acceptance to that now taking place because i think our society desperately needs that and the re- realization that i had and the reminder that i was given was that i Uh, Spend so much of my life living in this very thin wafer of all the dimensions that exist. Kind of like if you lived in a house with 20 rooms and you never left the corner of one of them and never even opened the doors of the other rooms. And and that experience that I had earlier this winter was so profound because it reminded me um, that uh, of all these other dimensions that exist and that. Uh, we as humans um, are, uh, as I said, most spend most of our time living <laughs> in one sliver. And when you're when you enter the world of the farm and of farming and the community that surrounds the farm, both uh, human and um, and non-human, um, you have to accept that unlike the dominant industrial model of agriculture, which the, where the farmer is the like the general standing, you know, in the field, you know, fighting off invading forces, uh, you have to, at some point, if you're going to do it well, find your way into the slipstream of biological activity of the natural world and see yourself as only one piece of this system. Um, to, and tr- to truly be successful, um, you have to find that place. Um, where you are not necessarily the controller or the only um, element. You are just a part of many elements. And to find that place, is a, it's a wonderful feeling. Um, it isn't that you don't have a major role to play. It isn't that um, you don't have work to do uh, or all the innumerable practical aspects of what we do. But if we don't find um, uh, some sense of humility in this process, uh, then we we will fail ultimately, you know, and when I say fail, I'm not talking about success or failure on the basis of economic or um, I'm talking about in the long term, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if I've answered any of your questions, but I think the question was, Exceptional and and um, reminded me once again <laughs> um, that um, you know I'm just a one link in this chain, you know. Um, and the other thing at 67 years old is that I, <laughs> you know, I'm finally coming to terms with my own mortality and that this thing is so brief in you know um what can i do with the short time i have here that's really going to be meaningful you know
0: thank you so much for sharing that about the the journey you took i do agree with you that under certain safe conditions those kinds of things can be um incredibly disarming uh when when we're very used to having so many defenses up against the world you know, it strikes me when you speak about this general in the field and, you know, commanding the fleet of um, weed spraying robots and monitoring everything from a distance. I, I And this kind of brings us to what's broken about the current food system. There are those who argue that, yes, organic, regenerative, holistic, it's great, but that cannot be quote unquote scaled. It cannot feed the planet and the amount of humans that we are with the amount of arable land that's left and that will be left, um, with rising temperatures, we will need some balance of industrialized, uh, general wielding farming combined with the kinds of approaches that you describe. What would you say to that? I mean, do you think that we will need both, or that those farms, those massive—I'm sure you've flown over them, or even been in them, as you drive past in your car, judging what you know what they could be doing. Um, what do you see as the future of those kinds of systems? Do do we need them? Yeah, that's a really good
1: question. You know, I <clears throat> I spent a lot of years um, after my first book came out in the early '90s, and up until really four or five years ago, um, in the winter months, doing quite a bit of speaking at events and universities and, you know, and it, it always amazed me that inevitably uh, on and on occasion, someone would raise their hand and say, well, uh, Mr. Abelman, and you know, when they use the word mystery that you're in trouble, but <laughs> we, we love the, what you're doing and, you know, uh your good, all your good work, but how is it that you think that the system of farming that you're proposing is going to feed the world, you know? And so that's been, you know, that was a common question, and I, my answer was always um, uh, that it wasn't, it wouldn't, and uh, the reason I say that is that <laughs> um, I think that um, you know we're uh, we have to recognize that um, that we're facing uh, a situation where we have populations that far outstrip our ability to properly take care of them. You know, in other words, there's more people than we can, than this planet really should be supporting. Um, and I, this is a very difficult conversation to have, but I feel that we have to deal this idea of, um, the, of, uh, agriculture solving what is essentially a social and, um, population issue is ridiculous. You know, um, uh uh we need to address this issue from many fronts i'm not suggesting that agriculture should not be a piece of that conversation but that um there is no system of agriculture that can support populations as they're currently exploding especially when we consider um the fact that we have not been able to contain our worst impulses regarding um climate and other issues this is um we're we're in huge trouble on that front, and so I say um, I say that and then I say, well, but also but also on every scale uh, really sensible and smart um more sustainable more ecological friendly uh, agricultural systems on every scale with every product, every food product are being demonstrated now everywhere in the world, so we're this is no longer the purview of a few hippie farmers with wearing tie dye and Birkenstocks in northern California on a small you know three acre plot this is this these systems are being adopted and accepted and innovated on and improved all around the world on huge scales you know twenty thousand acres down to you know a half an acre in the middle of the city you know and so um this is not um uh applying the principles of sensible considerate uh ecological agricultural systems based on based on nature um is now infiltrated the entire network now I, with that said the industrial model is still entrenched <laughs> and still pushing uh uh and we have um you know we have voices uh like uh Microsoft's founder—I'm losing his name now—who—who um, who, uh, is uh, uh, having a huge and I don't think very positive influence on other parts of the world, like on in Africa. Um, uh, you know, he—he comes from a technological perspective. Uh, I can't believe I'm not
0: thinking of the guy's name. If you can help me, out. Yeah. It's it's Bill Gates and the whole green revolution, right? Thank you, Bill. Yeah, it's very contentious. So I mean, he's a technological. Yeah. So he 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 understands
1: only one thing, and that's so he's applying technology to agriculture, and of course, pushing uh, a highly uh, controversial and I think wrong agenda down there um, when he could be supporting some really amazing things, you know. I think his instincts and his desire to help are probably good. I don't know, um, and so I think that I don't want to diminish the fact that the industrial mindset is still entrenched in the food system. Uh, but I don't. Uh, I want to say that there are excellent models on every scale that demonstrate that we can, in fact, um, feed ourselves within uh, population sensibility with. Uh, systems that really take care of the land and take care of the people that are working with them.
0: Yeah, I want to pick up on on some of the threads that you've shared as it links this question of incredibly technologized um, evolutions in agriculture. You know, in the beginning, you shared this example of the thirty of you on that farm on that um, apple and pear orchard, and how there was something about the fruit that just was better for whatever reason, and this notion of in Seoul, Food Street Farms, how when you how when those um, staff members tended to those urban plots, they healed. So there there is some kind of conversation or communication happening between human and land, human and farm that is beneficial to both. And my concern, and I'll I'll put my you know, ag tech investor hat on now, my concern with a lot of the agricultural technological innovations are that they are missing that component of binding a human being to an ecological um, food system. Um, and I think that it can be done well. You know, I don't know in your farm if you have sensors and so on, but I, I think that some things can be laborious and maybe might take time. And so maybe if a farmer has a sensor telling him how much water is there, as long as he's not fully or she's not fully bypassing um, The need to check the water at all in their own intuitive sense, as you would do walking the land, I think those things might be helpful. Um, But I I wonder when we look at the amount of money, it's billions, if not trillions of dollars today that are pouring into reforming agriculture because of how destructive it's been on the planet, unfortunately. Um, I wonder what could be like criteria That people could look out for um because i know that people who also listen to this show are investors um like what are the criteria that people can look out for in terms of okay this is something that is in right relationship somehow versus this is a um single-mindedly technological approach that doesn't heal the land and human beings to in the to the extent that agriculture can do so maybe we can, you know, jam a little bit on like what what could those criteria be like? What what can people look out for? Maybe you've even seen examples that 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 could stand up to that litmus test.
1: Yeah, well, Alexa, I'm not um I'm not against technology if it's appropriate and not destructive and I I have pretty clear lines. Um uh for example, uh I am uh i have no issues whatsoever with traditional hybridization of plants um uh what i call traditional breeding which is breeding within similar species <laughs> but i am dead set against the arrogance of um when we begin breeding within unrelated species, I think this is a very dangerous game, you know, and we don't know what we're doing. What
0: would that be, for example?
1: Well, a lot of the, you know, genetic modifications that are happening, you know, putting, you know, pig genes into spinach or, you know, human genes into salmon or... That's
0: happening? Pig genes into spinach?
1: Oh, yeah. There's a lot of breeding uh, uh, being done. (laughs) I'm giving you some of the more extreme examples, mind you. But, uh, you know, the the first... There's actually been very little development uh, in terms of genetic modifications in, uh, fruits and vegetables. It's most of it's been, um, you know, grains and, and hay crops and commodity crops. And, you know, um, and I think, you know, like the, 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 one of the first developments was the flavor saver tomato, which, um, uh, calgene gotten, uh, released a tomato that would, would look fresh and ripe on the shelves for weeks without going off. And I, I, Got myself in a lot of trouble in the early days, earning the title of food terrorist from our friend Julia Child after a speech I gave about that tomato. But I wear that with, as a badge of honor. But the thing is that I'm not against traditional breeding, um, which is breeding within related species. That, um, in fact, that's been going on for a long time, you know, and um, and a lot of uh, farmers that I know are are, are dependent on certain uh, hybridized varieties that uh, are have qualities that are exceptional, and we also use a lot of open pollinated varieties that have not been hybridized i mean we're I live in both worlds I do not support uh, the uh, breeding of unrelated species and a lot of the genetic modifications that are happening um, I think that uh, i uh, um, the um, uh, incredible um An overwhelming use of uh, synthetic uh, materials to uh, control pests and diseases and to um, fertilize plants, I think, is a huge mistake. And we don't need it. We know we don't need it when we create this uh, living, uh, dynamic, uh, biologically active soil. Uh, pest and disease problems uh, are virtually non-existent. It's the same as how you take care of yourself when you get run down and don't eat well and don't sleep well. You are subject to all kinds of things.
0: What about the biological varieties of those, right? All of the new ones on the market.
1: Yeah, so some of the, I mean, it's very interesting. There is an arsenal of available and acceptable and legal materials for the organic grower, uh, biological and botanical controls for, that is available and um, uh, I we use virtually nothing occasionally we uh, will uh, lean on um, uh, there's there's some bacteria uh, uh, one product in particular called bacillus thuringiensis which is very helpful with if you have uh, um, worm issues um, uh, um, but it is so rare on this farm that we use any controls uh, except for exclusion. We have, you know, miles of deer fence. It, this is not a substitution of materials. And this is a mistake. In the there has been an industrialization of organic, which I railed against for years. Uh, you cannot bring the same mindset to this system and say, well, I'm going to substitute uh, BT for malthion or, uh, you know... <laughs> This is not the way we should be thinking about it, you know. Um, we should be considering uh, our systems from a much broader um, ecological pr- perspective, building a foundation in the soil uh, and working from there because everything else goes from there. You know.
0: And as you said, there's such parallels.
1: No, I mean, I, I'm not against technology. I mean, we're talking on a I've got a laptop, I got my first cell phone. Four months ago, <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I think there are. Uh, we use tractors. Um, I have I have a wonderful electric tractor I, that I just got that the Canadian government helped us buy, which I'm excited about. You know,
0: <laughs> so yeah, I was just gonna say, um, it, you know, the the parallels between our the soil microbiome and our microbiome in terms of like the basic health that needs to be there instead of just pumping yourself full of things that are compensating for imbalances um i can't believe that we have only a few minutes left and <laughs> the time has flown by much quicker um we always try to leave people with something um actionable that they can do at the end of these these episodes um and i'm sure this is advice that you've given in the past and it might be very simple but you know beyond volunteering at a local farm or um sourcing from a local farmer and uh you know participating uh through agriculture, through the act of eating. How can people be more involved in that? I think that deeper sense that you were speaking about, which was observing the land and asking it what it needs to such an extent that plants may start to say in their own way, hey, I need this. Just when you see a human being who's sad, you know what they need. You know, it's their face, it's their body body posture. It's absurd to think that we can't read nature in that way. You know, if we can read other humans, we can of course read a plant when it's quote unquote sad. Um, how do people hone those capacities and and kind of get started?
1: It's a great ending question. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I really want to remind your listeners, um, that, uh, We live in a world, at least in North America, but I believe uh, in Europe and other parts of the world where only two, two and a half percent of the population is growing the nourishment for the rest. And in my mind, uh, uh, that uh, crazy number is what has created many of the problems in the food system. Uh, Almost everything can be traced to that. In order for that 2% to achieve what what is impossible, they rely on techno and chemical and industrial methods um, in order to to do that, and I I get it. Um, And in fact, I would say that one of the greatest unspoken international emergencies that we're facing is the graying of that 2%. Uh, Like I said, I'm 67 years old and I've got a lot of energy and I'll probably keep working, but many of the people that are doing this work are in my age bracket, and in spite of all the excitement and interest amongst younger people we're still not seeing the the numbers that we need and the staying power that we need to carry this on this is a huge um unspoken and uh international emergency you know i um number one i would i i feel like it's really critical that we find ways Uh, to encourage more people into a profession that for many years was not well respected. It is more so now. Um, One of the best ways to do that is to demonstrate you can make a decent living doing it. I mean, you can, you can bring up all the other reasons, but people need to know that they can support their families. And so people can support farmers in a way, never, ever question the price. uh, if, If anyone had any idea what went into every product that you see, especially if you're buying direct from the grower. Uh, that's one area where your money should never be questioned. Obviously, <laughs> we have to take care of those who don't have the resources to buy high-quality food. You know, part of my work has been in that area. But don't ever question a farmer's pricing. Support them. You know, um, And if they're um, not growing the best food, well, go to someone who is, you know. Um, But find ways to encourage more younger people into this profession. Find ways to honor those who are doing it both financially and otherwise, okay? Um, Participate in the food system in a much deeper way than you ever have. And I believe that one of the most important things people can do is to at least grow a portion of their personal needs. Whether it's on a balcony or a windowsill or a front or backyard, or community garden, that alone has a huge impact on your own thinking and understanding of what it takes. But it also takes some of the power into your own hands. And I'm talking about salad greens, culinary herbs, simple stuff, you know. Um, In my mind, the future of the food system may be that the small percentage of farmers may no longer be relied on to grow um uh you know carrots and tomatoes and those things that should be the purview of people in their own home gardens but the farmers professional farmers should be relied on in the future especially considering the numbers that they're so few to produce the engine of the diet those things that we definitely cannot live with the grains and the beans and pulses and the and the meats and the dairy products and those things that are absolutely uh, required to keep us going, and that fruits and vegetables and highly perishable products should be grown close to home by individuals who are using them in neighborhoods in urban farms you know <laughs> um and leave the uh the less perishable in and, and uh, more scaled and uh, more skilled required uh, products, the, those engine uh, diet engine products to people uh, who are working as professional farms at least until we expand our population. So I'm talking about the farmer population, not the human population.
0: Thank you, Michael. That is really, really sage advice. And you're right, I forget often just the, as you said, the existential threat of, um, aging farmers and no one to take over the land. So that's really helpful, actionable advice to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you for your wisdom. And I'm going to leave links for everyone to check out, um, you know, to be able to get in touch with you. And now you have a phone, so get ready <laughs> um, to be inundated by messages. But um, thank you so much for your time today and um, and for sharing so many years of experience working the land and and being Finally attuned to the systems that you that you surround yourself um, with so blessings and thank you
1: thank you so much alexa i, I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, uh, your um, insights and questions were awesome I, I i appreciate it thank you
0: thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh life world episode coming out in two weeks time where we will be rewilding the Earth's landscapes and learning how to reintroduce the vilified, feared, and misunderstood wild creatures back into their balance-keeping roles. I would love to hear from you, and please reach out to me on the website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open-source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list, and I'll see you back here soon.